Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Welcome back. You're listening to America This Week. I'm Carrie Weber, Executive Editor for America, and I am joined today by Father Matt Malone, our Editor-in-Chief, and Zach Davis, one of our Assistant Editors. So for anyone who uh, is not ever listened to this channel before, we'll introduce Jen Jen Fulweiler, who's a writer, a speaker, and she's the host of the aptly named The Jennifer Fulweiler Show, airing daily here on Sirius XM, channel 129. And she has a new book out, which hopefully you've already heard about, called One Beautiful Dream, The Rollicking Tale of Personal Passions, Family Chaos, and Saying Yes to Them Both. Jennifer Fulweiler, welcome to the show. I am so glad to be here with you guys. We are very glad to uh, have you on the show. It's funny. We usually hear your voice as we're exiting the studio. Because we're all in this serious... I feel like we're, we're, we're members of a family who never talk to each other. <laughs> That's right. Well, and you guys are used to seeing me rushing around when I'm there in New York. That We have two minutes between when your show ends and my show right, begins. It's like, so right. it's always... We're elbowing past each other. Hi, hi. Good to see you guys. Okay, good I'm to see you. All right, get out of my chair. Yeah. It's not unlike some family. Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And you know, Father Matt, I actually thought that was a great segue because anyone who is trying to balance, you know, putting God and family first, keeping your priorities in the right place, but still, you know, doing the work that you think God's calling you to do, it feels like a war a lot of days. I I thought that was a great segue. Uh, So tell us a little bit about this war that you're in the midst of that that prompted, uh, tell us what prompted this, this book in particular. Yeah, so the reason I, I told this story is my first book was about my conversion from lifelong atheism to Catholicism. That that was a bit of a ride there to, to go through that. So I had told that story, and a lot of people were asking, okay, so what happened next? That's a big transition. I mean, I was an absolute careerist, someone who thought that fulfillment and happiness can only be found in kind of a corporate style workplace. I didn't want a family. I did not want children. I was pro-choice. And I didn't even think you could be pro-contraception. I was like, isn't that like air or water? Like everyone agrees this is an absolute necessity. And so a lot of people naturally asked, uh, so how did that go when, right. when you became <laughs> right. Catholic? Right. And, and so A I wrote this changed. story. Yeah, I, I wrote this story to kind of answer the question of my new understanding of what fulfillment looks like. And I didn't write the book for only a Catholic audience, it, even though it's a very Catholic story. I wrote it assuming that I'm, I'm speaking to people of all faith backgrounds and all different beliefs to tell that story of you know, going from thinking that fulfillment can only be found in a very individualistic, godless worldview to just rethinking what the entire concept of, you know, having it all, to use the the old term, just rethinking what that concept even looks like. Right. So part of that revelation you write about in an excerpt that we have on our website at americamagazine.org slash serious. And uh, the excerpt is titled on our site, In the Midst of Angst About My Family Situation, These Three Words Help Me Find Peace. And I think the three words that you mention in this piece uh, are, uh, it's a wonderful example of a phrase that sort of sums up the transition that you made from that old viewpoint to the new one. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the phrase was actually coined by Sheldon Vonnegut. He wrote the classic memoir, A Severe Mercy. Beautiful, beautiful memoir. And this phrase was not coined in the memoir, but in some later writing he did. He coined the term 
wholeness of vision. Isn't that a great phrase? Yeah. Wholeness of vision. And he was specifically thinking of his late wife when she was only 14 years old. She had a crisis pregnancy. It was a very, very, very difficult situation for her and her family. Her father was a, a highly respected preacher. And this, this was back in the 30s or 40s. So you can imagine what a scandal that was. And he was just reflecting on how, on the one hand, he could respect what his wife had gone through at, at age 14, but later in his life, he actually connected with the daughter she ended up giving birth to and giving up for adoption. This woman is, or was at the time he knew her, was a nurse, had three children of her own, a beautiful woman. Sheldon Vonnegut never went on to have kids himself. He and his late wife did not have kids. And so this woman became his kind of surrogate daughter, and they had a very deep relationship. And so he wrote a very moving piece about how we often make our big life decisions based on the tyranny of the immediate, how it will impact my plans for this month and, and this year. And those are legitimate concerns, but we often miss the 10, 20, 30, 40 year vision. And, and we, we, we miss thinking about what we're really going to care about when it's all said and done. Uh, Sheldon was writing at the end of his life, he knew his time on this earth was drawing to a close. And so that's when he coined that term, wholeness of vision, and how important it is when we think of those things when we're making our big life decisions. And it seems to me that in the in the digital world we're living in today, that the tyranny of the immediate, I mean, it, it, it's become oh. a, like a leviathan, right? I mean, oh, because yeah. <laughs> we are, uh, I mean, we're besieged constantly. Like, I, I was just talking to somebody this morning, I said, you know, who works in business, and I said, what is the one thing CEO needs and CEOs need? And he said, they need time to think. They need the time to think about the future. And um and then I was reading this article about, you know, the the use of email and was saying, you know, you gotta get out of there, look at it like twice a day, because if you if you look at it all the time, then then what is immediate is what will drive you, right? And you you won't be able to step back. And I can only imagine, not being a parent, that 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 you know, that that the press of events in daily family life uh must you know, in the digital age must be even um, you know, more difficult to <laughs> navigate. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it absolutely is, Father Matt. But I would say people, you know, single people, I think, have their own pressures. Because I, I often laugh at Father Matt. And Carrie, you might be able to relate to this, too, that when you're a parent, especially, you know, I've got six kids, people kind of give you a pass with a lot of stuff. They'll say, oh, I can't ask Jen to do that. She's got her six kids. But you, Father Matt, they're like, what's Father Matt doing? He can help me with this. He can, <laughs> he can be on this. And so I think that, I think that people who are single, people who have religious vocations, we all face this same pressure to let the tyranny of the immediate dictate our lives. And, and you know, I think that's what often leads to midlife crises. Certainly, we have a, a culture of midlife crises in our country. And I think that a, a big part of that is you wake up one day, maybe you're in, in your 40s or 50s or 60s or whatever it is, and you realize, I have not been thinking with a wholeness of vision. I've been making all of my life decisions based on the tyranny of the immediate. And I think that is absolutely what, absolutely what fuels midlife crises. And this phrase sort of came over you and gave you some peace while you were pregnant with your fourth child, correct? Correct, so yes. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about the anxiety you, you, were, you were feeling at the time? 
Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> we so I often joke that my, when my husband and I converted to Catholicism, we did a ton of research. We really got on board with the view of family planning through natural through natural family planning. But, you know, we missed the classes. I mean, we were already married. We already had kids when we converted. So we were terrible at it. I mean, terrible. <laughs> we you know, there are all these different methods like Marquette method and Creighton. We used the Fulweiler guesstimation method. Uh, that that has an accuracy rate of like sixty percent. And so I, I very quickly learned that God's timing is sometimes not our own timing. And so I was reflecting on this idea that this particular situation. Obviously, I loved the child. I was grateful, so grateful to have another child coming into our family. But I had some medical issues I was dealing with as part of my pregnancy, and it it just felt like the wrong time. And and I think it's important in Catholic culture, especially those of us who, you know, we're we're into the pro-life movement. I mean, we think this is important. Sometimes I think in Catholic culture in particular, we hesitate to admit, yeah, you know what? I am freaked out about this positive pregnancy test. I'm really worried about this. This feels like really bad timing to me. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book and, and that chapter in particular, to just share that honest experience of being someone who is Catholic, recognizes the, you know, the, the beauty of family life and of, of children and all of that. But that doesn't preclude saying, hey, this was stressful to me. This, was, this felt like bad timing, and I was struggling with it. So, so that was why I, I shared that you know, fairly intimate story in, in that chapter. Yeah, it's tough because I think it can... Feel, there's a fear often that it will come across as a lack of gratitude or a lack of love right. for the child or some some other part of you is lacking when re- there's there's really just you know the the tension or the nervousness that you might have around any big change in your life and that's normal and that's natural exactly Carrie and yeah and I think so many women especially are afraid to say this in Catholic culture because, yeah, it feels like you're saying, I hate babies. Right. <laughs> you know, right. if you say, right. I, I got a positive pregnancy test and it kind of feels like this is the wrong time. Right. Right, exactly. Right. That's actually how Queen Victoria did it. She just came out and said that. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's one route. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so, Jen, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that uh, that yes, right? That sense of wanting to be there for your family and wanting to pursue something else uh, that was part of your creative passions. And we we were talking before the break a bit about the pressure that a lot of women feel to, to behave a certain way as a Catholic mother. Uh, I wonder how that extended to the way you saw your work and life balance. Yeah, Carrie, I love that question. So coming into Catholicism, you know, I was always sort of the the A student in school. I, I always needed to get the highest grade on the test. And I very much brought that mentality into being not just Catholic, but a, being a Catholic mother. I was going to get an A plus in Catholicism. And so <laughs> I, I, I very much, very quickly adopted all of these ideas of what I thought a quote-unquote good Catholic mother did. And so I, I didn't pursue any of my passions. I didn't even look into hobbies or things like that because I knew from the blogs that real Catholic mothers who actually care about their families, they're doing the glitter crafts and they're making replicas of Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, with their children, with toothpicks. and and But yet I found myself 
with this sense of a lack of fulfillment. And ultimately, and this is one of the big things I chronicle in One Beautiful Dream, I realized that surprisingly enough, that idea that I absolutely had to shut down my personal passions if I were going to be a quote-unquote good Catholic mother, that actually stemmed from my old atheist individualism, that I still thought of my passions and the work that I do in this one box way over here. And then family life is in this other box way over here. And I realized after talking to a priest that that's not really how God intends for things to be. And in in a truly family-focused view in which you're connecting with your family and in your community, you can share your passions with the people you love. This does not have to be an either-or thing. And so the second half of the book is really about me learning how to bring my family into my passions and vice versa. And, and in fact, Carrie, now I'm going to be living this out because for my book tour, we're starting with nine cities on the East Coast, and I am bringing all six of my children. So I'm, I'm oh really gosh. living out the message of the book. <laughs> Do you have like an RV or something exciting like that? No, 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 nothing that classy. It's just, it's going to be two rental cars and, and we are, we're going to be on the road for almost three weeks, six kids. I'm doing my show every day. I'm doing all these book tour stops. So if I don't die, it will be a great witness <laughs> great to, to the message of my story. Sure. You might get another book just out of yes, this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Plenty of stories for the show. Jen, could you talk a little yeah. bit about uh, that integration of bringing your passions into your, your family and your family into your passions? That sounds like it could be messy. Very, very messy. And, you know, that's the thing is I used to think that if I am going to pursue a calling that is outside of family life, for, for example, for me, what I talk about a lot in the book is writing. That's my background. I'm, I'm a writer by by passion and, and by work background. And, and so I really used to think that the only thing I could possibly do with that is some sort of traditional job or, you know, something like that. And what I found is that I could bring this in to my family life, but it does involve sacrifices. The analogy I use in in the book that was given to me by this priest is this idea of thinking of yourself and the people God has sent into your life. You know, if you're in religious life, it might be your community. If for those of us who have families, it's our families, is thinking of yourself as being part of a symphony orchestra. So, you know, you can use your talents. You're actually, you know, you're actively using the instrument that God has given you. You're putting your work out there, but you are doing it as part of a greater whole. And so that means you don't get to be a soloist all the time. You know, I, I have had to turn down pretty cool opportunities because they didn't work in the context of my family life. But on the other hand, there are other opportunities where I say, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this book tour and kids just come along with me. <laughs> right. And so, it, you know, it is. It's, it's a constant balancing act and a lot of times it feels messy it feels like you're not doing it right you know there's there's no one size fits all answer here right do you have advice for people whose work is maybe not uh, or their passions aren't in that creative field so writing is something that is is really really difficult and needs very specific uh, sometimes mentality or place to do it, but it's it has a degree of flexibility to it that say if you are want if your passion is architecture or engineering right. or a lab scientist like they don't necessarily let six kids into the lab. So what, so <laughs> yes. what do you what do you have? Do you have advice for someone whose passions don't necessarily uh, align with that kind of flexibility? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it all starts with bringing your family into your work in whatever way you can. Something I I touch on a little bit in the book is that my husband, Joe, is an attorney. And so, you know, people don't really like to have six kids sitting there in their depositions, oddly enough. (laughs) And so so for a while, I kind of thought, well, that's in sort of a whole separate realm. That's a different message. But what we found is Joe started bringing us into the work that he's doing. And and while we didn't go into the details of his legal briefs or anything, he would talk to us about his goals. And if he had an opportunity come up and say, okay, I could take on this case, but it would mean a whole lot of extra work. But on the other hand, I'm really passionate about helping this person with their cause. And we would think through that decision together as a family. And and I think, Carrie, a lot of women especially, we are so trained almost by the the world around us to feel guilty about anything we ever do in our careers or with our hobbies or whatever that I think sometimes we almost feel like we're we're rats who have to scurry off into a corner you know to do anything right. with our career and then go you know the, the shamefully accept the promotion at work or whatever but my message to anyone whether your work is creative or it's more corporate is to break down those walls separating your career from your family and call a family meeting. Say, hey, my, mm-hmm. my boss says I might be in line for a promotion to, to vice president at my job. What do you guys think? I mean, what are the trade-offs here? Should I take it? And then you can do all of this guilt-free because you know, you know you've talked to your family about this. You know how they feel about it. And you know that you're approaching this with a team mentality, even if your, your family is not literally involved in the day-to-day work that you do. What's that been like for your children, being part of that decision-making process? They, you know, it's interesting. It's really energizing to them. Kids very often are, I think they feel left out of the adults world. Mm. And my kids just feel so important and and energized when I say, hey, what do you think? Like with this book tour, Zach, I, I wanted to do the book tour, but I said, you know, I'm not going to do this if the family's not on board. It's going to be a lot of travel. You know, if they either can't come with me or don't think it's a good idea, then I won't do the book tour. And that's just one of the, the sacrifices that I will have to make as, as a you know, person who's trying to put family first. But they got really excited about it. And then they heard me and my husband discussing logistics. So not only does it add kind of a, a burst of energy to our, our family life, but it, I think it's also training our children to be good decision makers. They, I mean, they heard my husband and I talking about money. What does the financial picture look like? What is the payoff? And, and so I think they're, they're getting some good real-world training being part of these discussions. And I think there's a tendency that's you know good inclined to, for parents to sort of like shelter their children from those types of very practical and heavy decisions. Um, I feel like that was certainly my experience growing up. But yeah. to, that, that makes a lot of sense to be able to have your children um, – not only advocate for what they think, but also learn to listen. Yeah. And Zach, you know, one of the things I I talk about that I think is very interesting is that we are in the middle of a big cultural shift. And I think that our mentality about work and family life is taking a while to catch up. Because, for example, my grandparents, their, you know, their early adulthood was during the Great Depression, where there weren't a lot of jobs to go around. A lot of the jobs that were out there were very difficult. You know, so back in the days when the average person, their job was maybe, you know, working at the local coal mine or working in a factory. That was just a different scenario where you didn't have a lot of options. There just weren't a lot of opportunities. 
And so I think work really was kind of a falling on the sword type of experience. Like, all right, we, you know, we're trying not to starve to death here. So dad's going to go work in the coal mine and he's going to just try to get through that and bring home whatever money he can. And so work was very, uh, was almost always a, a pretty sacrificial experience, but we're in a new era now, you know, thanks to connectivity and the internet, there are all sorts of different ways to make money, ways to provide for your family and maybe even use some gifts that you enjoy using. And I think that we're still kind of stuck in the old world mentality of our grandparents. And we need to kind of rethink how we think about work and specifically how work fits into family life. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, I, you just got me thinking. I'm one of six children myself. And the, uh, the, the, I, I remember my father actually rather deliberately uh, at different points taking each of us or uh, some group of us uh, to to his workplace, and you know, us spending the day there. And oh, I love that. I remember that being like really important because I think as a kid, you just naturally think, you know, is this place where my parent goes for eight or nine hours a day more important than I am? Right? Because yeah. right? And uh, and and so like yeah, I guess now that I think about it, I guess I, I never really thought about this before, but <laughs> um, you know, him, him bringing us there was, an, was, that was an important moment, you know, in which say I'm bringing this, you who are uh, so important to me into this other thing that is important to me, but it, it somehow communicated something very important. Yeah. And it, and it sort of demystifies it yes. and it makes it clear that this is, you are part of this, that this is not right. some separate thing where he severs his connection to his family as soon as he walks in the door of his office. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I love your work, I must say. You know, and Oh, thank you. you. I think you're like the Irma Bombeck of our time. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. And my mother was a great fan of Irma Bombeck. I still remember the grass is always greener over the septic tank. It was it, it, <laughs> it never left her bedside. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a high high compliment. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, now how many different cities are you going to on this tour? Uh, nine, Father Matt. Oh, my Lord, that is unbelievable. <laughs> Will you get a chance yep. to show the kids some of those cities as part of the the tour? Like, is that is there like a historical or entertainment element to this to kind of sell them on it other than what? there's a lot of parishes and bookstores? Or are they excited about yeah. the parishes and bookstores? Well, Carrie, I, I'm no fool. We are bringing our nanny. That That's one of the things I talk about in One Beautiful Dream is I am unapologetic about having help. I think... All people with families need to be more open to seeking out help, accepting help. So I am not doing this on my own. My husband will be there. Our nanny will be there. And so to be honest, Carrie, I will probably be working, like doing my show, doing these events in every cities, in every city. But I do hope that my, my nanny might be able to take them and see the historical stuff. We've also had a lot of great volunteers um, offer to take them around. Like one of the events, I'm speaking at Harvard Square in Boston, and we've had some people volunteer to you know walk the kids around there and show them Harvard. And my husband went to Yale, so he um, he might veto that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is fantastic. Well, we want to we want to make sure that you have a few minutes to freshen up before you go on the air. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have six minutes. It's fine. <laughs> it's like hours in radio time. Right. Exactly. Right, yeah. Right. Sure. It is. Um, Jennifer, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. The book is One Beautiful Dream, The Rollicking Tale of Personal Passions, Family Chaos, and Saying Yes to Them Both. And you can read an exclusive excerpt from the book at americamagazine.org forward slash serious. Um, I, you know, it's always a breath of fresh air to have Jennifer on the show. 
isn't it? it we were gl- very glad to have her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I always think I, I, I never have anything to say about these things because I'm not a parent. Or you but, think you never have anything reala- to say about anything? Well, yeah, well no. <laughs> I have a lot to say about a lot. I got a lot more to say about the British Constitution. I can tell you that. I have no doubt. But then I realized, you know, actually, I was a kid. I, you know, so I. Yeah, do. I mean, people. Have, <laughs> I do have some most people have some element right. of family life in their own life, right? And right. that, and that's uh, that's absolutely valid, right? That there isn't. I, I mean, I was probably I was a much more confident parent before I actually became a parent. Um, (laughs) Right. uh, So, you know, some things do shift, but I think it it doesn't uh, mean you can't have a perspective on it that's useful. You know, as Jennifer said, some of the most useful things uh, that she's heard were, you know, one was from that priest who said, you're part of a symphony, right? You don't, good advice for family life doesn't have to come only from people who have, uh, you know, a certain type of family. Carrie, do you have role models? Who you look to for how to balance these things? In terms of balancing these yeah. things, I I mean I my my own mother had to balance these things, and I think I mean it feels like a cop out in some ways because when you any time you mention your mother, but it for most people this is the person you look to, right? Which which at the same time then puts so much pressure back on you. You're like oh, I look to my mother, and now my kids are going to look to me, <laughs> and what are they seeing? And I better do this right, you know, yeah, like right, right, so right. Uh, because you realize right. like how much influence your parents do have on you and and the choices that you make in some ways you know on the, in those small ways are like okay well that today he ate goldfish crackers yeah. for dinner and that's he's not gonna not go to college because of that right but <laughs> but you know you gotta have that right balance and try to live as that example because i think that that's where kids do get their their direction from yeah indeed you do and you know I've met your mother. I know your mother. I think she's a pretty good role model. <laughs> I think so, too. And I'm looking so, forward for you bringing uh, the kids back to America's office, too. Yeah. yeah. We look forward to that. You have been listening to uh, America This Week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You can read more about the, all of the stories that we touched on today at americamagazine.org forward slash Sirius. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And to subscribe to America, call 1-800-627-9533. That's 1-800-627-9533 for a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. For Kerry Weber and Zach Davis, I'm Father Matt Malone. Thank you and good day. Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to Sirius XM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.